Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Spurs in full cry here. Welcome, listeners, to The Extra Inch. My name's Wendy, and this is a very different episode to usual. Um, please keep listening. You will not regret it. This is brilliant, if I don't say so myself. So our bonus episodes tend to get fewer listeners than our regular episodes, which is a shame because, honestly, I think our bonus material is some of our strongest work. In this instance, it is not our work. I want to make that very clear from the start. So I got an email from a friend of the podcast, and everyone's favourite hirsute historian, Greg Jenner. Uh, Greg um, wrote to me very kindly because he, he's been making a show for Radio 4 called Past Forward, in which he gets played a bit of audio from uh, across the 100 years of the BBC archive and then makes a show about it. And he was played a newsreel from before the England-Argentina match in the World Cup in 1998. And so they made the programme about the David Beckham backlash and how that compared to modern online abuse. And he spoke to a man called Jonathan Herschler, who is a Spurs fan and the CEO of a data company, data science company called Signify. I won't say any more about Signify because Jonathan explains it better than I do. It is absolutely fascinating, the work they do. I was enthralled from start to finish. And then it gets even better because not only do we get this wonderful conversation about um, about the work Jonathan's doing to tackle online abuse for footballers, but Greg then has a conversation with Jonathan about the Y word. And obviously that is a continuation of the conversation we've been having on The Extra Inch over the past few months. Not only is it a continuation, it, it brings into play something I had never even heard of, let alone considered. And it is absolutely fascinating. It brings in a whole new perspective. And I think you're going to find that it, it changes your opinion, frankly. Um, it's a brilliant conversation. Thank you so much to Greg for sharing this with us. Thank you to Jonathan, who is so articulate and interesting. Uh, please enjoy, share, tell the world, because this is this is gold. So we heard a clip about David Beckham and the abuse that he faced in 1998 when he uh, was sent off against Argentina and and the nation felt let down and some might say betrayed I don't know but certainly he faced a torrent of abuse and then continued to face it at football um, grounds for, for years to come um, but this is an ongoing problem arguably worse in fact and so uh, the next person I'd like to speak to is someone who's trying to ad address these problems. Uh, I'm going to speak now to, to Jonathan Herschler, who is uh, a data scientist and the CEO of Signify, uh, which is an ethical data science company. I like the idea of ethical data science as opposed to unethical data science. That's good. Um, Jonathan, thank you for joining me. I, um, can you just talk me through what it is you have built? Sure. Uh, and thanks, Greg. Good, good to talk to you today. So, as you say, we're an ethical data science company and there are plenty out there. We, we all are well aware of Cambridge Analytica and the kinds of things that they were up to. We set out to develop um, a number of tools that show that, that, that AI and machine learning can be used for good and to not 
break people's privacy settings and um, to use publicly available data and still source lots of really rich, interesting information. Off the back of that, we realized we had a capability to identify online abuse as it was being targeted at sportsmen, women, uh, athletes, particular spotlight going on um, over the last couple of years in the world of football. So we set this service up. It's called Threat Matrix. It's because we're looking for direct threat in the first instance. And it's quite powerful. It has a capability of... Um, not just identifying, but categorizing the different types of abuse that are being sent, the volumes of abuse that are being sent to um, specific targets, the tactics that are being employed, um, and, and how some of it's being amplified and what the issues are around that, but also to associate where an account uh, might be, an account who's sending the abuse might be associated to a club, for example. Mm-hmm. We will try and highlight that to give the club more control, more power to take action against that individual. And then, you know, working with platforms, working with law enforcement, um, all of the different um, entities out there and the football authorities to try and take more action against these accounts. And it sounds uh, extremely sophisticated and I am stupid. So um, (laughs) how does that software work? You know, is it working in real time? You know, is it literally, you know, the final whistle goes on a game, uh, a player has missed a penalty, and straight away the abuse begins and the software kicks in and, and starts fielding those abusive messages? Well, actually, we try and get ahead of that even. Right. What we're looking for, uh, we call it a proactive monitoring service. And the reason it's proactive is because we're trying to identify any peaks of abuse that might be on their way up. Um, and what we mean by that is, you know, two derby teams play each other. You kind of know what you're looking for in terms of the abuse that one set of fans might send to the other set of fans and vice versa. So you're looking for that. You're looking for peaks. And then within those peaks, you're able to identify individual tweets or posts um, and then who's sending them. Where they're being prolific, where you've got the same people sending stuff over and over again, kind of trying to zoom in on some of that to identify the really bad actors and take action against them. And because it's proactive and you're doing some of that before a match might take place, if you're working with the club, if you're working with the security officials at that club, you've got the ability to give them a heads up. In some cases, people put on their profiles, you know, that some some of these people are really, really proud of being a season ticket holder at a particular club. They'll tell you, I sit in, you know, this stand in row Z, great, we know exactly where you're going to be at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. And we'll keep an eye on, you know, anything that you're that you're saying in the stadium as well as um, what, what's been coming out on social media. But um, we're not always that lucky. Very often we've got to do a little bit of heavy lifting, a little bit of work to identify who these people are, where they're coming from, whether they're in the UK, whether they're abroad, mm-hmm. um, and, and then pull together some evidence to show that they need to be looked at. So, I mean, to a certain extent, it sounds like you are anticipating and, and trying to profile in advance. It's almost sort of minority report style pre-crime stuff. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's fascinating. But I, I wanted to ask, you know, what is the current, you know, typical, um, cycle of abuse or, or, you know, the, the way in which abuse begins and unfurls? How, you know, is there a pattern that you, you've, you've established a model for it or is it sometimes quite different? Good question. And, and, uh, and I've never heard anyone ask, is there a model for it? That's a really interesting way of thinking about it. We've, we've looked at the different trends and we've looked at the different um, issues that are associated to it. But is there a direct model? Is there one thing that really tells you how this all works? Not really. There are lots of different elements involved. And abuse that's being directed at footballers, we've seen it come in through, uh, you know, Targeting a player who's had a bad performance, sure, um, very, very common. Um, they may be associated to a political issue um, or they may have spoken out on a particular campaign, also very common. Um, and, you know, the other issue behind this is that there just there aren't enough deterrents out there. So people just feel they can do it. And okay. you've got some nasty people out there. That the, the reasoning I've heard a lot of people in football use for... Um, why this is happening is that football is a reflection of society. In society, we have these bad actors. We have people who are racist, who are homophobic. Um, and obviously, that is reflected in a football ground or in a in a, a fan base of a particular football club because it's part of society. 
I don't know if I buy that completely. I mean, yes, there is an element of truth in that. But actually, I think we can do more about it. I think football has, and sport in general, has this unbelievable opportunity to make change in this space and lead. And if it is a societal problem, football can take the lead and hopefully it will filter through to the rest of society that this is not right and this is not acceptable. The pandemic has really changed footballing culture. You know, the, the lockdown, yeah. the, you know, the fact the fans weren't in the stadium, it, it, it seemed to have a very um, inflationary um, well, that's, aspect. That's the work we did for the PFA first time round when we covered um, Project Restart. The homework question for us was, is abuse going to get worse with the fans outside of the stadium? If yeah. they've, they've, they've already got a, a level of anonymity by having their phone in a stadium <clears throat> and having a social media account, are you adding an extra layer yeah. by taking them out of the stadium? Does that mean it's going to get worse? And it did, was, was the answer. So that was the work we did at the time to to sort of prove that across, I think we did 825,000 tweets that proved that point. So yeah. the AI infrastructure that you've built that does this, this kind of impressive um, monitoring, I don't know what the word is, do you think it is going to have an effect that is essentially acts as a kind of barrier you know it's essentially it's a bomb shelter for players so they don't get all that abuse that just lands on their head and, and you know ruins that day or is this actually something that can contribute to the eradication of racism in society you know can you reform people with this technology or are you just simply protecting the victims i mean the the, the reform idea is a you know that that's a long-term goal, obviously. That yeah. we that that we and so many other um, you know organisations who are working on this issue would like to have uh, as a long-term goal, and we're aiming towards. Of course, we are. What we've set up, I would probably refer to it more as a protective net rather than a bomb shelter, as you call it, Greg. Um, and that protective net is there to to try and change a process that's broken at the moment. So, what I mean by that is. The whole issue of um, abuse being targeted at footballers in particular is very much a victim-led solution that's in place at the moment. The, the, The player has to receive that abuse, they see it, and then it's totally on them to report it to the authorities. I mean, the, take the Premier League, they have a reporting system. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. It works quite well. Um, but it's still the onus, the onus is on the player to take what they found, report it to the system, and then for the Premier League to take action from there with the authorities or whoever. We're just trying to flip that round a little bit. Yeah. What we think we can do using the AI element is from public um, posts that are out there that are freely available for anyone to capture... Um, we look for these particular issues. So we're looking for racist abuse, homophobic abuse, anti-Semitic abuse, etc. There's, I think we have 13, 14 different buckets and categories that we look for. We're trying to capture that at scale. We're trying to capture it before the player has to go through that process of receiving it, reporting it, and doing everything themselves. Yeah. And if we can capture it at scale, and we can cross over with let's say one account who's sending 50 pieces of abuse to one player or to multiple players. Once we find that one account, we can pull together enough evidence for someone to take action against them, be that the club or the authorities. And in that sense, it, it's it's flipping this victim-led approach on its head and it's now a really proactive solution. And that's what we're trying to... That's our long-term goal. That's what we're trying to apply. Yeah. Um there will be people out there who will probably be very broadly in favor of this, but at the same time nervous about using AI and technology to sift through people's opinions and thoughts because, you know, computers can get things wrong. Um, their anxieties about technology overreaching. How does your matrix, your, your threat matrix actually judge what is abuse and what is legitimate anger at a, a bad performance? It's, well, first of all, I should say it's continuously learning, as are we. I mean, we're finding things all the time that we didn't know we needed to look for. Case in point, um, uh, a Chelsea player, um, a black Chelsea footballer who was receiving an awful lot of abuse right at the beginning of this year. He went public with it as well. Yeah. Um, and the abuse was coming to him because he was being associated to having performed badly. Yeah. Frank Lampard, the the fan's favourite manager, got sacked. That player was then targeted as being one of the reasons why their beloved manager got sacked. And the the terms of abuse that were being used and being hurled at him were snake and rat emojis. 
Right. Now, that's not something that we had been looking for beforehand. No. Um, we didn't know it was a term of abuse that was being weaponized, but we picked it up because we saw it in in connection to words like traitor and other much more, um, you know, uh, discriminatory phrases that we are looking for. So by doing that, we're learning all the time. Uh, there are human eyeballs and real people who are looking at the the output that is flagged by the AI system. So it's a mixture of real people and you know robots, if you will. So your Minority Report is it's not you know it's not many miles away from, from from where we're at today in terms of what AI can do. But we've created a a system that uses humans as well to focus on this, and then the real difference is where. Where you raise concerns, where people do rightly raise concerns about AI becoming surveillance tech and, mm-hmm. you know, really focusing on individuals all the time and, um, and doing surveillance, that is the opposite of what we do. So we are coming in through the lens of the issue specifically. We're not looking for a particular person. We're looking for an issue being triggered or flagged. So as I say, racist abuse, anti-Semitic abuse, yep. homophobic abuse, um, we're looking for those flags and once we find them if we then find evidence of people doing it you know over and over again or really targeting one particular player that's where we start to pull together um you know the information that the authorities should should use so you're not really in any position to actually punish people you can't shut people's accounts you can't do anything like that all you're doing is gathering data and going we've got this um portfolio of abuse by this particular account and we're going to give it to either the club so they can ban them for life or to the police because it's a crime. Well, there's 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 three levels, actually. There's first and foremost, there's working with the platforms. So um, the first stop for us is let's share this information with the platforms um, and help them to clean up their own um, their own systems and their own channels. So we're definitely up for helping them in the first instance. The second instance, as I mentioned, is working with the clubs. The clubs have a tremendous power um, over their fan base, um, as do the players and and the management, um, to affect change. And if the clubs say you must not do this, this is wrong. Over time, the fans start to take more notice than they would say, even if uh, the police were telling you that. And then the third level, as you say, is law enforcement. Yes, but. We only work um, through a client, so we'll be working with a club, um, passing the information back to them. It's down to them or the platform to then pass that straight through to law enforcement and take direct action with them. Okay. What is it about football that just brings in so much abuse? I mean, you and I both both support the same team, and that team is uh, having (laughs) sort of a bumpy (laughs) ride of late. Um, So I think you and I both felt very strong emotions, Um, but... Why why does football generate so much anger and and hatred and abuse and is it simply that it's it, it can be done and there's nothing you know at, at the moment until your technology kicks in you can get away with it is it simply that the absence of consequence means people just say whatever they like well first and foremost i i should say it's not just football um okay. we've seen it across um a number of different sports and even outside sport uh, <clears throat> where there are lots of uh, high profile individuals who become targets on social media so you know we've done work in athletics we've done work in cricket in um in in basketball um and and in you know a number of different countries across the world we're looking at this and there are lots of you know very similar signs that we're seeing um across uh, all of these fundamentally i think you've hit the nail on the head at the beginning of the question it's an emotional game and we're all very emotional about it i know i get emotional about (laughs) it for for often not for the, the right reasons but um you know it it is emotion. It does draw those emotions out. People get angry. People get upset. People get happy. Um, but it's the anger that you see coming out through, uh, through these social media posts that we're talking about. And, and the other point is that, you know, it is a bit of a free for all. Um, there is a mask, uh, a veil of anonymity that people feel that they can use to cloak themselves from any kind of justice, any kind of, uh, punishment so they feel they can get away with it and that's the other element that we're trying to close up lots of people out there who will say that anonymity is a fundamental part of internet culture and it's important it's there for you know democratic virtues and and to ensure the freedom of speech and you know that there are regimes who crack down and and so to have anonymity baked into twitter or facebook or whatever 
maybe not Facebook, but certainly Twitter, is something we must enshrine and maintain. So your process is, is one of evidence collection and then passing on to the club, and then maybe on to the police. That feels to me probably okay. I don't, I'm not sort of squirming at it and going, oh, it's overreach. But I do, I do wonder if there are, do you have ethical practices built into your company? You know, do you have oversight? Are there people saying you can't do that or that's too much or your technology is too, <laughs> too invasive? You know, yes. I, I uh, want the to answer, ask, you know, yeah, sorry. It, the answer to that is absolutely we do. We have a, a, a manifesto, an ethical manifesto of, of what we will and won't do and how we treat the information that we receive and what we can do with it and what we can't do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we actually review almost every case, every client that we work with, and we've turned down an awful lot of clients, which is a CEO of a business, quite frustrating at times. <laughs> sure. Um, but we've turned down a lot of work because we just don't feel that um, ethically we can do that. So, um, yes, we do. And and every, every practice that we put into place, every service that we've put into place is reviewed very carefully in terms of the kind of information that it will output, who it could affect. And and in many cases, we find ourselves protecting to a degree the abusive account holders as well as the the targets because you can't put their information out there um, either. They've still got their own you know, privacy, um, and you've got to respect that as well. So mm. it is difficult to, to the wider point about, um, anonymity where you kind of started making this point. Um, I, I buy the argument. I get the argument, um, that the social platforms use in terms of, you know, we need to think about freedom of speech. We need to think about countries where there are oppressive regimes and, Everybody needs to be able to use social media in the right way and as a voice, um, you know, the, the voice of the little guy. And, you know, would, would we have had the Arab Spring without sure. that capability? And I understand all of that. However, however, where there are very clear, very obvious instances of racial, homophobic, discriminatory abuse and threat being sent out, where those are being left up on platform for days, weeks, months, in some cases years, and just not taken down, I don't see any excuse for that. I, we, we've proven through what we're doing that there are a number of ways that you can capture that information and take it down much, much faster. We know the platforms are all working on that and trying to improve the situation, and we've seen some good things come out of it over the last uh, 18 months or so. But actually, we think they can do a lot better. They do have the information around um, the account holders. They have a lot more of that information. Um, and actually, in response to some work that we did with the PFA, just the summer just gone, um, Twitter actually came out and said, we have sort of 90-something percent of the information that we need of the accounts who are sending the abuse through to the uh, the three England players after the Euros. Yeah, We have that information and you know we're dealing with it that's not the picture that we've seen when we see so many of those tweets and posts still live. Um, and more importantly, it's one thing taking down the posts. It's a total other thing, taking down the accounts that are sending them, getting to the source of the problem. There's not enough of that happening. There's definitely not. Who are the people sending these abusive tweets? Because I think it's easy to imagine it's sort of, you know, furious, angry men in, in small rooms. You know, quite often I've read stories and, and about online trolls who tend to, you know, turn out to be middle-aged women who are housewives or teachers mm. or who have children or who are, you know, lovely grannies, but uh, they, they get online and they get angry. Do you have a profile, broadly speaking, of who, who these people can be? Can it be everyone? It is everyone. I mean, it's a real range, um, to be fair. And, and you know, the, there was the uh, case of um, Crystal Palace forward Wilf Sahar um, I think uh, last year during Project Restart and the abuse that he received was coming from I think it was an Aston Villa fan of about 12, 13 years of age something yeah. like that um, you know it, it, it's a range um, it, it's predominantly men in terms of football yes um, but the other interesting thing is the, the, the profile of where it's coming from one thing that we've seen the football authorities say quite a lot is this is all coming from international countries it's coming from you know um the, the sort of arab states it's coming from china it's coming from all these other countries therefore yes we can take some action but we're limited in what we can do sure and they 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 use statistics um 
that we've seen which don't always hold water properly um you know what we've what we saw we did a massive study with the pfa over the course of the last season just gone and across six to seven million tweets that we picked up and you know hundreds of thousands of flagged posts um we actually identified 50.3 percent of all the abuse that we saw was coming from domestic uk accounts so that's you know as well as saying oh no that's really bad news mm. um we're, we're really racist racist as a country yeah we were looking at it from a more positive angle and saying well actually that means we can take more action there's more we can do and you've got boris coming out with you know no ifs no buts if you're found guilty of sending online abuse you will be banned from all stadiums in the country great well here's the evidence yeah here are the accounts let's do some something about it um so you know more can be done have you had feedback from the players themselves and from the from the victims of you know the, do you have testimony from people saying yeah this is helping yes very much so in fact the, and we have spoken to quite a few players now and in every single instance where we've got down to that ground level of talking to the people who are receiving this on a day-to-day basis we've had really good feedback a lot of surprise really you can do that you're able to capture that much information you're able to take that level of action that's really impressive um we'd like to work with you so that's happened quite a lot but also i've seen um i've seen frustration uh if you can do that if there is technology out there to to do that kind of thing why are the platforms not doing it themselves why is there campaign after campaign after campaign but less real action taking place um and and for some players um who have gone public with the things that they're receiving um you know they get a huge amount of support when they put these when they post what they're receiving up on their own accounts they get a lot of support but they also get a lot of surprise because um people come back to them and say oh that's really terrible that you're receiving that level of abuse and the players that we've spoken to have said I only posted like four examples. I got like 4,000 that day. So it's much, much worse than, than, than people realize. So yes, the, the players that we've spoken to, and they have been a few, and they are quite high profile players, the kind of names that you've seen who have received this and gone public about it in some cases are really, really positive and just want action. So let's scroll forward a decade or so. You know, the, the clip we, uh, we began the show with is at 1998 and David Beckham had to deal with, you know, booze in the, in stadia. Uh, he had to deal with uh, various newspapers turning his face into a dartboard that you could, uh, cut out and keep, you know, delightful. Um, he had to deal with people burning effigies of him, hanging them outside stadia, but he didn't have to deal with direct threats coming into his phone or into his email or whatever. So scroll forward 10 years time, where do you hope we are in that, you know, next decade? Well, I, first of all, I remember, I remember 98 really, really well. Uh, I can tell you a whole other story about my experience of that, of that game and where I watch it, which is quite funny. Um, but I remember the, the David Beckham effigies with his number seven shirt and the, yeah. the sarong yeah. being, being hung outside pubs and stuff like that. And I also remember, I think it was the mirror, wasn't it, that put the dartboard out there. I remember that really, really well. I would say, where have we come since then? I would say, if you look at the work that we're doing and the the picture that's out there at the moment, it is like a virtual dartboard. And the the kind of abuse that Beckham received, albeit on a very focused single incident that took place in one game, um, but then went on for you know a number of weeks afterwards. I think we're seeing that on a day-to-day basis. I think that social media has brought so much positivity to the world, but it's also opened up the ability for a direct, you know, being able to reach these players directly. And, you know, the players are taking the benefits of social media in many, many ways and raising their profile and some of them doing absolutely wonderful things with the profile that they've now got, you know, the sort of Marcus Rashford's of this world, what they're doing is fantastic. And that could they do that without social media? Not really. Um, but at the same time, it's a two-way thing. And that channel is being misused in the other direction. Albeit, I should say, and this is all sounding really negative. Um, it's actually, when we do look at the, uh, the posts that players receive, um, certainly in relation to a bad performance or, you know, the kind of Beckham 98 type incidents that take place. The vast majority, the vast majority of what we see is positive 
support for that player. I mean, we forget that a lot when yeah. we're talking about these issues. But, you know, where the abuse is coming through, it's really nasty. And to your point, it's really targeted. And it does feel like a virtual dartboard. Yeah. Yeah, I remember actually, you know, when England lost in the finals of the Euros on, on penalties and that devastating near miss, uh, you know, and I think the whole nation had convinced itself it was coming home. Um, and I remember suddenly seeing a very young man stepping up to take a penalty and missing and thinking, oh, no, yeah, that poor guy. Because, you know, we'd, we'd seen it with Gareth Southgate, we'd seen it with Stuart Pearce, but here was a young black man who was, I, immediately I just thought, oh, the abuse he's going to get. But I was actually quite, quite sort of proud and pleased that Twitter that night was filled with comments from yeah. Spurs fans who ordinarily shout, you know, <laughs> a lot of nasty things at, at, at people who play for Arsenal. Uh, saying, "Well done, you did us proud." You know, you. Well, I was at I was at the the friendly which took place a few weeks later. Yes, that's right. Um, where Saka was warming up, yeah, and he got a really nice ovation. Yeah. And and I I was there with my kids, and I said to my kids, "I think we're going to give him a clap." And they looked at me like I was crazy. No, don't be silly. He's an Arsenal player. And then he started clapping, and my kids looked at me like, "How did you see that coming?" I was like, "I'm just really pleased it happened." Yeah, yeah, it did feel like actually. There was a lot more warmth and and pride and support than there was monstrous, horrible racism, whatever. But obviously, getting abuse in your inbox, getting it into your phone, getting it directly in your face, no matter how few examples there might be, it must be very, very upsetting. And so your your technology is there to try and shield, but also to to monitor and to ensure that gets cut out of the game. And I suppose I'm. I'm not really a techno evangelist, generally speaking. I'm a you know historian. I I like you know I'm I'm old school, but I do. There have been times certainly where I felt like nothing was happening and no, nothing was changing, and it feels like perhaps you are at least making inroads. So, do you think your technology might get bought out by the the big boys and they they come scoop you up and then and then suddenly your proprietary ideas are part and parcel of all the social media networks? Well, um, do I think that will happen? No, I don't think I don't think that will happen. Not not in the immediate term, anyway. But we are we are trying to partner with and work with um, a number of those big boys, as you as you yeah. as you put it, and big boys and girls, uh, of course, yes, and girls, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, lots of lots of um, you know clubs, uh, leagues, big sports organisations, sports confederations. We are now doing work across the world. We are doing work with uh, global associations covering sport. Um, I think. The first step for us is to help some of those different sports understand what the real picture looks like. And we've got a fairly um, a fairly unique capability at exposing that and showing how bad is the picture in your sport or the opposite. You know, there's a lot of noise around your sport around online abuse. How bad is it really? Actually, the volume's quite low um, and it's very targeted and therefore it's very easy to pick up. So off the back of that, what can the solutions look like? How can you put something more proactive out there and deal with it? That's what we're trying to do. And we're trying to work with um, anybody who wants to, um, to, to try and improve the, the situation. If it's all right with you, Dan, if it's okay with you, Jonathan, can we just sort of have a quick chat about the Y word? Yeah, and, I mean, 100%. This might not get used. We haven't quite figured out what the program is yet, how we're going to do it. But seeing as you're here, seeing as you're Spurs, um, it, it feels pretty sensible to at least grab you. Um, I'm speaking to Jonathan Herschler, who's a data scientist who runs Signify. And, and we spoke about um, his work in a different episode about David Beckham getting sent off in 1998. But also, Jonathan, you are a Spurs fan like me. I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, <laughs> ours is a special type of misery. But we also are a club with a historic Jewish heritage. There is a chant that is sung by Spurs fans, you know, of whom we now number some 60,000 in our new stadium, that uses um, an anti-Semitic slur as a reclamation. And it's, I'm going to call it the Y word. I wanted to ask, do you sing it? Have you ever sung it? What's your stance on it? I don't. Um, I don't recall singing it. Um, maybe I did before I understood its relevance when I was very, very young going to Spurs. I've gone to Spurs all my life. Um, I have uh, a Jewish background. Um, I have understood from a relatively young age um, the significance of it um, and what it means and therefore have had problems with it and have always had problems with it. And I think the fact that um, I was brought up knowing that 
my grandfather um, was um, he was in Auschwitz. Yeah. A lot of my family perished there. Uh, my grandfather actually escaped Auschwitz, um, hence the reason that I'm here today. And talking to my grandparents um, on both sides about the um, about the Y word itself and what it represents, I, I, I'm struck by the fact that my my grandma, um, who, who was not in the camps, um, on on my on my mother's side, my grandma, I recall her telling me, you know, this is, it's akin to the N word or the P word. If you're of Asian heritage or black heritage and, you know, it's, it's the same thing. It's, it's, and I associate it directly to Nazi Germany. Uh, this was my, my grandma talking at the time, um, to, to use that word, um, and to have someone like her seeing those kinds of pictures and visions, from a young age for me, that, that instilled an understanding that this is wrong, it shouldn't be used, um, and it needs to go away. Um, that said, that said, I have understood the complications around it, and I've understood the way it's been adopted by Spurs fans, many of whom, many of my friends who do use it, um, and I hold no grudge against them for using it, I, I understand why they do it. Um, they feel like it's been adopted by them across the 70s and 80s because other clubs fans have come across to uh, to Spurs and used it, hurled it as a term of abuse. Um, and they've accepted the fact that Spurs has got a, you know, a decent sized contingent of Jewish supporters, actually not that much bigger than a number of other clubs um, yeah. that I can think of, but they do. And they've adopted that as, uh, you know, part of their DNA, part of their identity and therefore are proud about it. And therefore let's use this. Let's turn it around. Let's use it as a badge of honor. You're going to call us that. We're going to flip it on its head and we're going to say, well, you can't damage us with that because we're proud of it. So I, I understand the reasoning behind that. I understand that the, the bit that strikes struck home for me most was um a friend of mine who um who is a big big spurs fan and has been going you know <laughs> since birth to to white hot lane absolutely loves the team not jewish doesn't have very many jewish friends and has always used the y word and one day he turned around to me and said jonathan i've never really asked you but how you know this, i think this was when david Badil started the first yeah um, sort of campaign around trying to have it taken away. Um, he said, I've never really asked you how you feel about it. And I explained the story to him, the one I just told you, Greg. And he looked at me and he was like, I never, I never knew you felt like that. I, I had no idea that some, you know, some Jewish people would have that kind of view towards the word. But then he sort of leant into me and said, but you know what? I'm really sorry to say this. I'm still going to use it on the terraces because that's part of my DNA and part of who I am. And I've always felt I'm using it for the right reasons. So despite that story, mm -hmm. he's, and you know, he's a nice, really nice guy. I don't think he's got a racist bone in his body. Um, but you know, if you can't get someone like that to change their mind, once you've told them the story, like the one I've just explained, I think getting a whole fan base to change it is going to be really difficult. And I, I don't envy Spurs, um, but I do know that it's time. In this current environment, I think with everything we're seeing, with the work we've been doing across you know, online abuse being targeted at footballers and discriminatory abuse in particular, with everything we're seeing, it's clear that it's time that this just has to change. I mean, that's a, a beautiful answer. and uh, <laughs> Probably a little bit too long for you, but... No, it's, it's really... I mean, I, you know... Um, uh, I, I'm trying to figure out how to, re if I need to reply. I mean, oh, oh, sorry, I'll reply. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, I, I stand in a kind of, um, classic sort of awkward, uh, fence sitting, like, uh, kind of way in that I don't think of myself as Jewish, but I also lost family in the Holocaust, Auschwitz. Um, but I didn't really know them that well, which is why I don't have the connection to the family. They were, they were French Jews. I'm half French. And so it was my grandmother's sister and father who, who went, um, so I never, I, weirdly, I became a Spurs fan sort of through coincidence, really, not through a kind of Jewish association. I've never sung the, the song, never, never chanted it knowingly, because uh, I always felt it was a slur and it wasn't right. But I never felt anger at it. I never felt like it was um, done with malice or intent. It always felt like a reclamation. Mm. Um, but there's that sort of, there is that tension, isn't it? Is that who gets to reclaim a word? 
can you can you reclaim a word on behalf of a community um not if you're not in that community probably is is how i feel about it but you know the reclamation of words is a powerful thing you know the suffragettes reclaimed that and used it as a banner you know it was an insult hurled against them and they said yeah we're suffragettes deal with it um but it's not the same as a racist slur that was used in the holocaust or in you know by by oswald mosley but i do also have friends who are really proud of that and have songs and it's part of their identity and for them it's about the nostalgia and love of the club and the experience and the commonality of of singing together and it's their heritage to sing it and they never did it with a malicious you know word in their mouth it's always about joy and pride and this is who we are and our our jewish brethren are part of our club's history and we're going to defend them it comes from a place of love and solidarity but i'm also very unsure about <laughs> if they get to, if Spurs fans get to reclaim it. That's where I stand on it. So I've never sung it, and I've also never really judged people who sing it because it's always felt like it's not it's not intended to be racist and it's not intended to be a, a kind of hateful act. I think I think the issue is within part of what you've just explained. I think the issue is about who gets to reclaim it and and how. And part of the problem there is. And we've seen this because we've spoken to some of the clubs who are involved in this. There are lots of clubs whose fans, specifically on social media, uh, are using the Y word alongside very clearly abusive terms and language right. and discrimination and threat and horrible stuff. I mean, I'm talking, you know, photos of the, the, the gates of Auschwitz and stuff like that Bloody being hell. sent okay. alongside... Um, you know, the Y word targeting Spurs fans, targeting Spurs players. And the issue that we've seen is that other clubs do want to deal with that problem. They yeah. 100% do want it to go away. They understand the anti-Semitic, um, uh, you know, issue with the word and that it's not going to go away until Spurs are able to, to really do something about it themselves. And that's, what's being used as I won't say it's an excuse because I think that's it's perhaps a little bit unfair on some clubs who are do, you know take Chelsea for example they're doing some absolutely amazing work on education around anti-semitism really really impressive stuff um, coming out of that club but they're doing so because they know that their fan base have a particular issue with it yeah and that and that issue is there because that fan base is um, you know a direct competitor a derby with Spurs and that's the abuse they're using it works the other way as well the Spurs fans are using homophobic abuse um, directed back at the Chelsea fans and we see this across different derbies and different rivalries across the league but until Spurs get some kind of clearer position on the fact that something that it's not right that something does need to change that we do need to start phasing this word out I think it needs to come from the fans in a different way I know the attempt that was made a few years ago didn't succeed because I think it went via the club, via the police, saying, you know, we we will arrest you if you're if you're using this word. That's it's just not going to work that way. Maybe that's the only way. I don't know, um, but it didn't have the success that they wanted it to a number of years ago, and then they left it. I think they monitored the situation, but now I think something has to change. Yes, yeah, so I, I I tend to think that the punitive route um, feels probably unhelpful in the end because i think maybe it, it yeah. pushes people into a position of really defending things and then and then they feel like they're being attacked but i think education is, is the key part isn't it it's about explaining what the word is and what it really means and also the fact that you can sing a song in a stadium and people understand the context because there's there are people kicking a ball around but as soon as you start singing it in a pub or in the street or on a plane well this is the okay so here's here's the interesting bit we did when we first set up threat matrix as a as a service one of the first things we did was look at the y word obviously because i had that closeness to, yeah. to spurs and the issue and i wanted to see and this addresses one of the questions you asked me when we talked about um social media abuse we wanted to see whether we could pick up the y word being used as a term of abuse being used aggressively versus where it's being used as a badge of honor by the spurs right fans. okay and we could we set up the ai to identify that and it's actually not that difficult to do because all you're doing is looking for abusive words alongside the y word in a sentence so it's quite doable. Um, we did that. We then looked at how it was being used across. Um, we did a, a small pilot by looking at 
I think it was a hundred thousand tweets where the Y word was mentioned, and um, there was um, what was the percentage? I think it was something like um, yeah, no, uh, more than half. More than half was it being used as a slur, very very clearly. Right. Um, so we picked up. I think we picked up a thousand or so um, examples of the Y word being used specifically. Um, I think 545 of those posts were slurs, very clearly. So where people say, well, it's being used as a badge of honour, it's all fine. Well, actually, the evidence that we found showed otherwise when you look at it more widely. And the other really interesting thing, and I think one of the reasons why the club probably feels they have to deal with this right now, is that we saw, we looked at where it's being used. And obviously, there was a focus around London, focus around North London and other clubs that you know uh, that don't don't like Spurs very much, perhaps using it as a term of abuse uh, targeted at them. So you saw the pockets across the UK of the other clubs who were using it, but then we started to pick it up in South Korea and uh, right. in Asia and in the US. Yeah, um, predominantly around where the supporters' clubs of Spurs were based. So what did that tell us? That told us effectively. Whether they intend to do so or not, and you would hope they don't intend to do so, Spurs are, by by way of not taking control of this particular issue, are effectively exporting this abusive word to other countries. Um, And it might be being used there in a more positive light as, you know, um, the badge of honour element, certainly in the US where we look at it. But if it's not explained to people, they yeah. won't necessarily understand that and they'll see it going both ways. So it was a really interesting picture when we saw that. And we think, you know, this is a business that, that unfortunately, if the reality is uh, football clubs nowadays are businesses, certainly in the Premier League. And if your brand is exporting words of hate across different countries where you're trying to expand your brand footprint, that's that's a commercial problem as well. Right. Yes, I mean, for listeners who, do, who don't know, uh, Spurs, uh, one of our star players, is uh, Human Song, who is a, a South Korean superstar. I mean, he's the best player in Asia. And he's brilliant. He's brilliant. He's the loveliest man in the world. Brilliant, lovely smile. And he's incredibly famous back home. And uh, the club has also um, had a huge um, burst of popularity in the USA. And there are loads and loads and loads of, of American Spurs fans now. So you're right, Jonathan. I guess actually this is no longer just a UK thing, isn't it? This is now global Spurs. Um, which means that the Y word has been decontextualized and transported into Asia and North America, or maybe recontextualized, because I guess there are plenty of of, of Jewish people around the world who might be like, what on earth? How on earth has this word <laughs> re-emerged? Oh, hang on, it's football. Oh, God. So there's there's more to it than simply pride then that's interesting i hadn't considered that that's and, and that's well i think you'll i think you'll hear more of that as and you know i think the club will start to take action i know that they're planning a few things okay. um and I, i'll be really pleased to see that happening and if there's any way we can help them we'll 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 be there to help them no problem at all and given my my own personal experience with the issue i'd love to see it dealt with uh, one way or another and i think it will take time it will take time yeah, yeah all but things it, take you time. Know, it, it needs to start that action needs to start soon though Jonathan Herschler thanks very much thanks Greg even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more plus Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, listeners. Sorry, Greg here. Um, 
we had everything we needed at this point. But you know that thing where you sort of go to hang up on a call and then you suddenly remember a story and then you find yourself chatting for another half an hour? Well, that's what happened with Jonathan. Uh, he was a very charming and, and funny guy. And uh, he suddenly wanted to tell me a story about what it was like when he was in France in 1998 to watch England play in the World Cup. Um, and they had watched the Argentina game with the infamous Beckham sending off. And then something quite funny had happened. So uh, here's Jonathan telling that story. And then, um, and then after that, we'll come back for a bit more chat about how Jonathan and I became Spurs fans. Cheers. Yeah, yeah. So my story is, I was in, I was in France. I didn't get to the game. I couldn't get tickets to the game. I was in Nice with um, one of my best friends and a couple of other friends, and we ended up watching the game in Nice in a pub full of English fans. Um, and it was like this really felt like an underground, dirty. It was really, really sweaty in there. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and we watched the game, and I, I think it's one of the most high drama games, bar maybe the the Ajax Spurs uh, semi final of of 2019. I think it's one of the most high drama games I can remember. Um, you know, it really did keep swinging each way, and then. Everyone was really going for it in this in this bar, and really, you know, the fans were really roaring in this bar. It was going crazy. Right at the end of the game, uh, was it was it David Batty missed the last penalty? Who was it? Missed the last penalty? I can't, I can't remember. remember who missed it. Um, whoever it was, the last penalty was taken, and <laughs> as the penalty was saved, without seeing anything else, this screen that we were watching the game on started to roll up and. Behind the screen was a band getting ready to play a gig, and the lead guitarist was at the front on his mic, just like ah, <laughs> like this. Oh and there was complete silence. It felt like the silence may have lasted for. It felt like maybe five minutes. It was probably about thirty seconds. But all you could hear was complete silence, and then suddenly a pint glass dropped and smashed, and that was the first noise you heard. <laughs> to their credit, to their credit, this band, they, they came through it. I don't know how. Started singing Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. Um, <laughs> and they kicked off with that instead of running a full gig. It was hilarious. It was hilarious. But I really did fear for their lives at that point. That's amazing. <laughs> the, the screen slowly lifts. It really, it was, yeah. Honestly, it was like rabbit in headlights behind the screen. It was absolutely hilarious. Hundreds and we were like, it's going to kick off in here. It's going to kick off in oh, here. Oh, my goodness me. That's, yes. That, <laughs> see, 98, I was 16, but also I'm half French. And so I was actually cheering for France because uh, <laughs> when I was 13, I rather... I rather clever. You had a great World Cup then. Well, I mean, I've I've had a, a very happy life in that regard because when I was thirteen, I decided I'd support England in the rugby and France in the football. And obviously, <laughs> soon after England won the rugby, yes. and then France have twice won the World Cup, and so it's it's worked out very nicely. But I remember '98 being the year where England genuinely might win it. Like there was, oh, you know, we there was had a good Owen team. and Shearer, we had a good and there, team. Was, there was some really really exciting players, and so that disappointment was so cathartic and so powerful. Yeah, um, and it was yeah. It, it's kind of fascinating how long ago it is. I mean, it, I wonder if you, as part of part of the the piece that you're doing, um, there was a black player who took a penalty. Paul Lintz took a penalty, didn't he? And he missed his. Did he miss his, or did he score his? I can't remember. remember. I think he missed. I think Paul Lintz missed <clears throat> a penalty. You should check that out, actually, mm. because there's a direct comparison. Yeah, with with what's just happened. Yeah, uh, which is quite interesting. But um, yeah, we had a good team. We had a very focused uh, Alan Shearer who was really on fire that season. Yeah, and, then, um, and, then the and even won. players like Sol Campbell, who you know at the time I think we were all behind because um, <laughs> he was he was superb. He was superb at that point. He really really was. And didn't um, Darren Anderson play right back or something? Darren Anderson played. Yeah. Was he, he did. Right back or was he right wing? There was, he was right wing. I think, I think it was, was right wing. I remember him having a, like a weird position where he was like a weird early wing back or something. But everyone, um, everyone thinks of that game. You think of the Michael Owen goal as well. And, yeah. And actually, David Beckham, I think he only got sent off in extra time, didn't he? It was, you know, we had the full 90 minutes with him. I can't remember. Um, and it was just about hanging on. It was about hanging on without him. That was the problem. I remember him getting sent off really early. We'll have to check. I think that. it was in extra time. I think it was early in extra time. Oh, maybe. Maybe it was. But he, and it was Simeone, wasn't it? Simeone, who. Yeah. Sort of fell to the ground like he'd been shot. Yeah, it was. Yeah, uh, I mean that's. It's a. I remember feeling sorry for him. I remember feeling sorry for Beckham. It was. A, it was a, a minor flick of the foot, and yeah. you know the the player crumpled to the ground, and uh, such things dreams are crushed. You know. You, yes. You, you've indeed. Got to, you indeed. Be, you know that's before VAR. 
Yeah, only twenty three. God, yeah. Uh, but the following year, he won the treble, so he's fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's done all right since, hasn't he's, he? To he's be fair, he's, you know, he's he's one coping. of the richest sportsmen on the planet. He's, doing he's all okay. right. Okay, last section. So this is just um, Jonathan and me chatting about how we are both Spurs fans, how we got into the club. Um, and I begin by uh, telling him that actually my dad was a Chelsea fan, um, but these days he's a Spurs fan. Weird story, I know, but actually quite nice. I chose Spurs. My dad was a Chelsea fan. Wait, he's a Chelsea fan. Well, no, he's a Spurs fan now. We converted him. Um, How did you do that? That's impressive. My brother and I both... Uh, just liked Spurs and he my dad fell out of love with football fell out of love with Chelsea but you must have converted him so let, let's time this you must have converted him <laughs> pre-Abramovich obviously well it, it's, it must have been no, I mean no my dad's quite he's quite sort of lefty so actually the money coming in <laughs> ruined Chelsea for him what uh, a mistake <laughs> and he, he was like no I don't like I don't like that this club has been supercharged um, and then he was very he, I, I sort of seduced him with the kind of Pochettino years where he just was he fell in love with the football and the kind of energy in the you know the athleticism it was the, it's yeah. the best it's the best period that I've known it's I mean the, I, I, I'm, so- I'm a little bit older than you so I, I remember the <laughs> I remember going and watching in the 80s um, sort of mid to late 80s um, I really got into it um, as a sort of 10, uh, 10, 11, 12 year old around sort of the early 90s, Gaza yeah. um, and Lineker, that team with Terry Venables managing, you know, it was awesome. It was all, Gaza's the best pound for pound footballer I've ever <laughs> seen. And I've seen Maradona play on a pitch yeah. and Messi and Ronaldo. But for me, he was just magic. Magic. When the ball incredible. fell at his feet, you had no clue what he was going to do. And that was the either. magic. That was the joy of it. Yeah, he, he was, didn't. He didn't. <laughs> he was discovering Absolutely. as he went. Um, Absolutely. So, no, I, 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 I fell in love with it then. But, um, yeah, your dad must regret that. It would only have been funny if <laughs> funnier if he had then switched and gone to support Newcastle or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. That would have been quite funny. If, if he toured all of the Doom clubs. <laughs> <laughs> no, but funny enough, I chose Spurs because of the name. I loved the name when I was about 10. I just fell in love with the name. I didn't have an association at all. Uh, I hadn't been to see him. Just chose the name. Loved it. And ironically, I became a medieval historian. And of course, we are named after a 15th century medieval knight. We are the only club to be named after a, a Shakespeare Oh, is character. it? Is it the only one? Yeah. I think so. I didn't realise yeah. that. You know, he's in Shakespeare. He's in Henry IV, part one. So um, I think... I think so but you know it's a medieval knight I mean that's the coolest thing ever isn't it Harry Hartsburg <laughs> if you're a historian yes I, yeah, uh, and, and, and I love my history as well and mm. uh, you know that, that was my yeah. my major at university but oh, was it? Oh. Get, getting my kids to, to, <laughs> to get behind that is a little bit trickier yeah yeah all right fair I think. Um, but yeah I think that's what's so interesting about choosing a football club or supporting a club is we often inherit it from our parents or a family tradition. Yeah, very or much you so. You choose it, and that that choice means that you opt in, which means you you're 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 having to fall in love afresh, you know. And it's it's really interesting. How not, many, yeah. You know how many like American that. fans have discovered Spurs? Yeah. Because um, do you listen to the the extra inch? I have listened to that. It's I have listened to that. My favourite Spurs podcast, and, and actually we might get them involved in this discussion a little bit because they're really great on this, but um, they've got a really good community, online community called the X-Subs, and loads of them are Americans. And about 10 years ago, NBC picked up the, the Premier League rights, and loads of American fans were like, I need to choose a club who represents yeah. me. And Spurs were this sort of this gleaming possibility <laughs> of, well, look, there's Gareth Bale, and he's good. <laughs> But also, there's a history of disappointment, and that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's London. That's a the great romanticism city. is definitely the there. romance is there. You could visit London. It's a great city. Get on a flight. Um, we don't win often, but when we do win, it means a lot. And there were a lot of fans who who sort of Blind almost sort of went on dating apps almost to choose a club that represented them, and they landed on Spurs because it was <laughs> this glimmer of possibility that we might win a thing, but it was not set in stone it definitely wasn't and they've definitely had an exciting <laughs> ride since then i would say Hasn't they just you know my goodness i was you know i was brought into it. my my grandfather on my mother's side um was a spurs fan and actually if, if you want to go back to the story we were just talking about he had a really re- really re- religious uh dad so my great-grandfather was mm. i don't think he was a rabbi but he wasn't far from it yeah and um he, my grandfather used to sneak out of the house um, on a Saturday afternoon to go and watch Spurs on Sabbath. And yeah. if he out on the Sabbath, and if his dad had found out about it, he would have. 
beating the crap out of him. Yeah. Uh, no question about it. So um, it started there. Uh, you know, it goes right back to then. And then my my father, who's Israeli, came over here and my grandfather started taking him to Spurs games. So he started supporting Spurs. I think he had a bit of an inkling of a support towards them already, even when he was watching out in Israel. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the double winning side of the 60s was probably when he first started watching football anyway. So, um, you know, I've been brought up through that. And now I've inflicted that punishment on my three boys. Oh. Um, all three of them have gone through... Well, to be fair, you, you talk about the Pochettino era. They have grown up watching football where... For the first time in my life, I was going week in, week out and expecting to win. Yeah. I mean, and we were winning and was, we were doing really, really well. I was giddy. Um, <laughs> all the way up to the Champions League final, which I went to, which was incredible. Don't. But then so disappointing oh, after the first minute. We lost um, it like 50 seconds in. I mean, it oh, was... How, yeah, and that's, and that's so Spursy as well, isn't it? It that's really, really is. Spursy. Ultimate but, um, No, it was... Yeah. It's, been, it's been a ride. It's been a ride and certainly since... <laughs> I try to explain to people that Spurs um, defi- it sort of explains my personality, sense of humour and approach to life in general because I'm a sort of um, optimist with who expects defeat. Uh, it's <laughs> like I'm a sort of very upbeat positive. That summarises all of us, I think. But who also it, it knows that at the last hurdle some hilarious lasagna-based obstacle will come <laughs> yes. and destroy everything. Which is why COVID, I've struggled sometimes with COVID a little bit, but I've also always imagined it's going to get worse because as a Spurs fan, I'm like, yes, of course it's going to keep going. So, um, oh, you've been uh, well trained. We yeah, will have. It is, it's funny, isn't it? We're a bit like a sort of kicked puppy. We're kind of... yeah. Hopeful that this time the master will not not beat us. But and then you keep going back to the master for another kick. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You've been listening to the Extra Inch. Thanks to Nathan A. Clark for production. Thanks to Bardi for being Italian. Thanks to Adam Gardner for the artwork. Thanks to David Lindmer for our intro music. You can find him on Twitter at Davy Shambles and his SoundCloud D Lindmer. Do check him out. He's great. Great, great. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at the Extra Inch. Email us via podcast at theextrainch.co.uk and subscribe via your usual podcast platforms. And if you do enjoy the podcast, consider leaving us a rating and review. That would really help.